Welcome to Life's Undertaking. I'm Brad Jones. And I'm Shannon Leahy. I'm your happy undertaker, and Shannon is our... I'm the writer, and the joke is, what happens when an undertaker and a writer walk into a bar, sit down, and have a drink? (laughs) The conversations that start from there are pretty amazing. The stories that are told, the tales that are spun... And the hostages we capture, like today's guest. (laughs) (laughs) We have a guest today. That's right, Shannon. And I'm excited about our guest. I met our guest back in 1996. Um, Back in 1996, uh, I was marking exams for Humber College and the Board of Funeral Services. And Maggie came in to do her exam here at... uh, at our funeral home. What kind of an exam? Like a grade 10 geography exam? Or what are we talking about here? No, it was uh, just a typical uh, funeral director's exam embalming. Oh, but of course, I should have guessed that. I apologize. <laughs> and it, it's, it's amazing. Over the years, Maggie and I, we, uh, we kept bumping into each other. We were at different uh, associations, different functions. Maggie uh, has this incredible career that's evolved, evolved over time, which is pretty fascinating to watch and to be a part of. Nice. I remember meeting our guest uh, last uh, Christmas, actually, and she was one of uh, our speakers at your Holidays and Hope. And I remember falling in love with her as a speaker because you had a crowd of about, what, 200 to 300 people uh, coming together, and all of them for the most part, um, nodded their heads to just about everything Maggie presented from her wisdom as a grief counselor. Correct. So Maggie has done some grief groups for us, and she's done our grief walk. So I'd like to uh, take this chance to uh, introduce Maggie Shields. Thank you, and good evening. Hi, Maggie. We're really happy you're here. Thank you, Shannon. And you have a beautiful voice for radio. Oh. And a face for television, unlike Brad. <laughs> Poor Brad. That's very true. Very true. Poor My voice Brad. is horrible. <laughs> and what are you drinking tonight, uh, Maggie? Right now we're drinking um, water. Water, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you may be drinking water. My water has been distilled a few times. <laughs> I'm enjoying a little bit of a scotch. We've got red wine and a little white wine on uh, on the go. So what comes up for me as very much a lay person, Maggie, is I'm curious how you first came to be a grief counselor, which I have a feeling was not the first step on your uh, on your journey, both personally and professionally. Exactly. I, I um, in nineteen. 19- 92, I decided I was going to become a funeral director. So I applied at the local college and wrote the test, and they sent me back a nice letter to say that I wasn't smart enough, that maybe (laughs) I should go back to high school and get some education. Oh, wow. So I thought, well, there you go. I'm not smart. So I put it down for a week, and then I thought, damn, I'm not going to let them tell me that. I am smart. So I went back and did another rewrite and got into the pre-health to teach me how to study and how to get back in school, because I'd been out of school for 27 years. So um, I went back, and I got my my year and passed with honors and showed my kids up and 
Then I reapplied and got into the funeral services. Uh, how old approximately were you at that time? 45. You were 45. So you already had, but you were, you were married. You, you did have your kids. You have had other, you had had other jobs or professions at that time. And then it was a complete shift. Complete shift, and, yes. And now, how many years later, that's, that's increasingly common, if, if not the norm. Exactly. Exactly. So in a lot of ways, Maggie was a little bit of a trailblazer. Exactly. There weren't many women in funeral services then. And you were kind of, um, um, kind of pushed to the back because it was a little boys. It was, it was truly considered a a male career. Yeah. It was more male than female. And now the fee, now it's more female than men. So that's good to see. Women are more nurturing and they are very good at what they do. Not that the men aren't, but there's certain things women can do that a man can't. I I think uh, the funeral industry is well served by having both male and female in it. And I think uh, they both bring different things to the table. And it's, uh, it's good to see. Absolutely. I agree. Well, I'm thinking of your staff right now, Brad, is also too, you have multi, multi generational staff. We right? do. Yeah. From the very young to to uh, to the very right to old, the middle, like me. To, to the to the very old to to you know the 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 tape measure is it, it's clicking back fast. <laughs> uh-huh. It's like I always say, you know, I have more years behind me than I have ahead of me at this point in life. But that's okay. I'm I'm comfortable with that. It's a good balance when you have the mix like that. It is. What one of the many things that I enjoy about my friendship with Brad and and I remind him uh, frequently, if if not almost daily is as a lay person, which is what very much what I consider myself, is people do have a fascination, if a curiosity, if not a, beyond a, sometimes a fear, true, of what it is funeral directors do. And then ultimately underneath that is why do you do what you do? So I'm really curious, there you are going back to school, you're, you're not only going back to school, you're reconnecting with school for, and then having to upgrade and all, and, and all the rest at a time when m- most of us in our 40s, we, w- we want to coast a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how did you respond to questions from friends and family, possibly your husband, your kids about like of all these things you can do, Maggie, of all these things you can do, mom? Like, why this? Why, why do you possibly want to be a funeral director? Well, my husband wasn't for it. He was, he was one of those in that where you're a woman, you shouldn't be trying to do that. But my kids were, go for it, Ma. Good for you. And because the school told me I wasn't smart enough to do it, I said, I am, and I will do it. And I did do it. So that's, don't tell me I can't do something because it just puts my back against the wall and look out. That's one of the things I love about Maggie is, you know, she she took that chance back in 1992 to apply to Humber College and to get into the industry. But as I said earlier in the intro, uh, Maggie has evolved. She has constantly changed and grown and expanded her reach. Um, and she's gone from being a funeral director to being a pre-need to director to being a bereavement counselor to being a funeral celebrant. Um, you'll see her often at our funeral home. Uh, conducting funeral services. You'll see her um, hosting our bereavement services and our bereavement groups. Um, She's so well-rounded and so in-depth. To hear that she was told she wasn't smart enough for this industry, I think what they were really saying is you're too smart to be a funeral director. You need to be more. Well, I divorced my husband shortly after that. <laughs> See, she was very smart. Yeah. So this show also has a, it's called Life's Undertaking or How to End, How to End a Marriage and Become a Funeral Director. Uh, it didn't <laughs> work for me. 
<laughs> I still go back to that origin story of, of all the things you could have gone back to school for, you chose funeral service. And I'm curious what it was that, that lasered your focus on funeral service. Like, and that's a big question I know, but the why question, why, why do you do what you do? And this is, this is something that we're all asked. Anyone that ever gets into the that's industry right. is asked this question countless times. So yeah, Meg, I'd love to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason I actually got into funeral service was because my mom died when I was three years old. And I felt, always felt that there was some kind of a connection there that I wanted to find out what, was, what it was about. The behind the doors, the behind the curtain, what goes on in funeral services. And then in 1992, my stepbrother committed suicide and I had to go and make the arrangements. And I had a female director and I loved her compassion and her caring and her gentle way. And that's when I thought, this is what I would like to do because that's exactly what I want to do. Just, there's just, there's no word that you can say why you get into it. It's, it's, People will say, well, it takes a lot of stomach. And I say it takes more heart than it does stomach. Beautifully said. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we use our heart and our, you know, we we enjoy what we do. And it's funny that you say that because so many people think as an undertaker, as a funeral director, your heart is cold. Mm -hmm. You, You have no feeling. You're, you know, immune to death. But it is so the opposite. You know, you're not immune to death. You you have so much feeling. You have so much compassion and love for people. And, you know, I think a lot of what we do is we absorb the, the family's bereavement at that very moment that you're meeting with them. And you're trying to take some of that load off of their shoulders. And you, you soldier it through for them for the few days that you're with them, the few weeks that you're, you're in contact with them. And that's what a lot of what we do. And I think people oversee and they don't understand the compassion that funeral funeral directors have. And how much strength we give the families in those days. That they know that they can lean on us, that we're there for them, and nothing ever goes wrong because we got them. No, that's exactly it. And, you know, it's it's fascinating for me watching, you know, because I, you know, I'm probably not in the most intelligent scale because I'm still a funeral director. I didn't... Uh, <laughs> progressed into the bereavement sector like uh, Maggie did, but, you know, hey, for at least me, you're not a writer. Exactly. Well, you know, <laughs> I don't even know how to spell. <laughs> Thank God for spell check. Um, what, I, what I find fascinating is watching um, families that we, we set up with the bereavement group and seeing them from the beginning when we held them in our arms and how shattered they were to when you're taking them through that journey. And at the end, they are, they're whole again, and it's a different whole than they were before. You know, we're not the same. When we have a death in our family, when we've lost somebody we love, um, we, are, we are a different whole when we come through at the other end. So for me, watching you take our families through that bereavement process and send them on that path, and it is, it is amazing. It's something beautiful for us to see. Mm-hmm. We always enjoy when we, we bring our groups together and... Uh, the first week, everyone's a little apprehensive because, and there's no more than 12 people in a group, but they're all apprehensive when they come in and they usually sit with their arms folded and they, you know, they gently say who they are or who they've lost. 
And then by week four, week five, they're just like a little flower opening up. And it's just so nice to see that energy and to feel it, that they build a bond and a trust in the group. And that's why we have closed meetings. We don't have where people can just drop in. It's people who come and this is, you know, this is it. And once our full, we're full, we don't take anyone else because it breaks the trust in the group when we start bringing in someone's this week, they're here and then they're not. So that's why we like, we run a kind of a stiff ship. Well, and it was beautiful. I think uh, last year you invited me to come to one of your one of your groups to to answer some questions that some people had about funerals and, you know, why we do things and how we do things. And for me it was it was an amazing opportunity because some of the f- families that I met that night, some of the the individuals that were there, um, I had met them months prior. Mm-hmm. And they had a different aura about them. It was almost a piece that they had. Um, so for me, coming into that that day to answer questions that people had was uh, was uplifting for me because a lot of times we see families when they're really devastated and we don't get to see them again as often as you would with a group. So it was uh, it was a real blessing for me to come and see that. Thank you, thank you. And it is a blessing. It's a blessing for us to be there with them. Not really holding their hand, but giving them again that strength, but in a different way. They, someone told me last week that I, I said, do you enjoy the meetings? And he said, well, you're my strength. You're my end of the week and you're my beginning of the week. That's what keeps me going. So we're grateful for that. How did you transition from being a funeral director into being a grief counselor? It was, again, one of those things when I thought, I saw so many people coming through where I was working, and I thought, these people don't have anyone to go to after the funeral. Three months after the funeral, everyone forgets about you. Your family goes back to work, people move on, which is the way it goes, and you're left with this big hole. So I told my boss that I was going to go for grief training, and he said, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to Fort Collins, Colorado, to see Dr. Wolfelt. I did that, and I started the grief, the grief group in 2014. So would you say that just like with becoming a funeral director, this was also a vocation, a calling? Exactly. As Brad referenced, like, a, like an, an evolving role for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because my age had got up a little bit. Um, the funeral services is very heavy work. So for me, it was time to move on. And the universe sent me there. So I just followed it. For someone listening who has had someone they love die, they're, they're, they're facing tremendous loss. And if they were considering grief counseling, um, I actually didn't even know that you could, there was such a thing as grief counseling in a group, mm-hmm. or I've only heard of it in terms of be, being one on one counseling or therapy. But how do you, how would you know if you were up for gr- group therapy? Is that the right term? That probably really Support. isn't. Support. Support. Yeah, group therapy sounds mm-hmm. horrifying, even as I say that. <laughs> But when you when you you screen people for your support groups, correct? I do. So how how do you what kind of benchmarks do you have in place to determine who is actually when I use the word more appropriate? I mean, who would benefit more from one on one counseling versus uh, a, a group dynamic? Mm-hmm. How do you know where you fit in? Well, it doesn't take long. You know, when we work with people, you get to know that. If a person is going to absorb the whole group, you can't have that. What does that mean? Um, one person wants to talk the whole night long. 
Like Brad? Yeah. We're a group like. of 12 people and we, we tell them our policy and our promise is we, we don't interrupt and we don't monopolize the conversation. So you just get to know real quick whether the person is even ready for one-on-one. Sometimes it's just too soon. And people are telling them you better go and get some you better go and get some help because you're crying too much. And then there's other people that just don't want to be in a group because someone might know who they are. We face that too. Um, it's amazing to see though when you get someone in front of you. We talk on the phone and you get a feel for them already on the phone. And then you want to come in and have a meeting and we sit and talk and get to know each other, have a cup of tea, and and we let them know whether they would be able to come into the group or not. Mm. Do you have a real soft spot for men who are grieving? Men particularly still have this lens that a man is to be equivalent to John Wayne or a cowboy, right? That they're, when they're grieving, they are very much observed. Very much. How strong they are. Our groups are uh, more women than men, okay. although we have two male fa- facilitators. So they're kind of like pawns, if you would, in the uh, group that the other men see that there's a man there and it's not so bad to come into. Um, We have a new gentleman in our group now, and he came and was pre-screened with me, and he cried the whole time he sat with me. I knew he needed to be with men in the group. He needed to be with mixture of everyone. So he's enjoying the group immensely. He's now, we're at week five, and now he's starting to open up, which is so nice. Rather than him sitting at home all night long, crying and crying. No, it's it's amazing to see the way that people transform in the groups. Um, one of the things that we, we developed this year, we well, I say developed, we stole because I've uh, seen other people do it before. <laughs> hey, that's but, art. That's just art. That's, <laughs> that's being an artist. Art. <laughs> art or politics, right? Um, but we... Um, we we started our uh, grief walks, and yes. Maggie and uh, her husband Robert uh, did our grief walk for us this year, and it was a tremendous success. When we first put it out there, we were hoping for three or four people that would be interested, and we had was it fourteen people that came out. Fourteen. Yeah, that's pretty amazing, and it's something that we're looking at doing a few times a year. And it's one of those things where we we thought people uh, connect with nature. Um, Although I might suggest we rename it, not the grief walk, because the new people that came to the group, if I may, were surprised that I didn't talk about grief. Yeah, well, that was that was part of the whole thing, right? Was not uh, not to not talk talking, about grief, just having people quiet in their own thoughts. But yeah, we'll have to rename that. We'll I think said of we something. do. I said we do that in our group. Would you like to join the group? And then they came into the group because it was a grief walk. Which I said, I, if I walked backwards and talk, tried to talk about grief, I'd stumble. So that wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. One of the ways that I I really appreciated how. Uh, you and Brad framed pitching the grief walk until further notice, let's call it a grief walk, Mm -hmm. was how you framed it around the science behind that. Because uh, in my world, we could call some of that data dumping, but at the same time, it shows the credibility of it's not, you know, be, being a hippie going out for a walk, heaven forbid, because, and, and crying in, in the forest. Of course, that, that appeals to some of us for sure, which implies that I'm a hippie. But referring to science that's coming out actually proving the, the impact on mood. Just, let's just say mood. Just by yes. be, being A with other people. We know a lot of this stuff, but still it's a new twist on mindfulness and community and belonging and not feeling alone. And yet there's something magical, pun intended, about when you 
about science when you say this is proven mm-hmm. and I go back to that that sense of of stigma is still out there about uh, mourning and grief or just or just actually when you're asked oh so how are you doing and if you choose to say actually how you're feeling well and right most, and like, most of us don't right? and no. well and, 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 and that's that's the and that that implies that the ta- taboo, right? That there's still it's scary. There's, yes, it's it, it's scary for every because people involved. really don't want to know how you're feeling or how you're doing. And, and it's most just of us want to pretend that we're actually happy. Yes, right. Exactly. We, we say that we're doing well. We say that we're okay. We don't want to admit that we're uh, we're hurting inside. You're tearing apart. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there's there's three things that I think bond people: um, nature, food, and drink. <laughs> Those are, those are the three things, you know, when you can get your opportunity to go out into nature and you go out with other people, you, you get bonded by the nature you're with you, mm-hmm. you all look at the spectacular sceneries around you and, you know, you all take in something different. The other thing we do is we come together as family and as friends and we share meals together. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that we also do is we come together as family, friends, and even strangers mm-hmm. and we share drinks together. And, you know, I, I think it's time that we, uh, we do a bit of a cheers right now. Yay. And you know, the, you know what else is that's present at? Is that, is that a funeral? Yes. Right? It is. Yes. It is. To grief cheers. walk, to, to be grief. renamed. Uh, well, you learn something new every time, right? Mm. It was also an opportunity for me to fill up my glass. Speaking of, um, of, of things where people, um, about how are you, I'm fine, and, and, and then moving on. When you look back over the years, both your experience as a, as a funeral director and as you have evolved into a grief counselor, what kind of, I, I don't want to use, I'll use the word pet peeves, um, but likely you wouldn't. I, I think that people, when they come to you, they're already wounded by loss. They're already not the same. They're changed. Exactly. And that's the rub too, is they're completely changed, but the outside world really hasn't other than to meet the people impacted directly. And then I would also think by the time they come make their way to you and they find you, they're wounded in another way because they're not receiving the, the support. They, they don't even know how to define because I think of the, the phrase, um, if there's anything I can do, if there's anything we can do. And it's so, it's such an end game or keep busy, mm-hmm. um, or time heals all wounds, or God wouldn't give you anything more than you can handle, and all this kind of stuff. Like, what comes up for you when you think of, if you were to give advice to people who want to, because I believe 99% of people are decent and good, and they, they want to do the right thing, um, but they don't want to be socially awkward as well, right? Mm-hmm. And they don't want you to be socially awkward. Mm-hmm. But but what are some things that people who want to offer comfort can not do? We'll do a negative directive. What are things not to do when s- someone you care about is is grieving? They're mourning. Mm-hmm. I think the the biggest thing is not to try to compare yourself to someone else who's on a grief journey because everyone loves differently and everyone grieves differently. So I usually like to tell our people to be gentle with themselves and don't listen to what other people say because it's going to make them more upset. Like hurry back to work or, you know, go out shopping or those, those are just all little things that don't help them 
It might help them at the moment, but it's not going to help them. And then they tell people too, and don't go to a grief group because that's the worst thing you can do. Does that surprise you, Brad? Not at all. Don't go to a grief group? Not at all. That knocks my socks off, really. I, mm -hmm. I think the main reason that people say that is because they don't know what's happening there. No. Right? So they can't be a part of it. They can't tell you what they think needs to be done. Um, the other thing that I find that happens wow. too is people stay away. They mm -hmm. stop calling. Mm -hmm. They don't drop by like they used to. Mm -hmm. um, it's like you're a leper. It's like you're a leper. My dad, my dad explained it to me is he felt like he was a, uh, a third wheel um, on most dates. And it was, uh, it was difficult because he had some friends that would stay in contact with him and they'd still get together and do things. And there were some friends that just kind of fell away. This is after your mom died. This is after my mom died. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, so it was, uh, for him, he just wanted people not to stay away from him, just to continue to talk to him. Like he hasn't changed. He's not different than he was other than he's lost his wife and he was grieving. He was still the same man. He still had the same interest. He still wanted to do the same things. So for him, it was, um, when people stayed away. If I could add one more thing, people put a time limit too on how long you should grieve. When we first started our grief group, the, there was one gentleman who had lost his wife, and um, I had the daughter's number, not his number, so I called to see if she thought he would like to join the grief group, and she said, no, 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 it's been a year, he's ready to move on now, he wants to meet friends, and he's going to... But that man came every day to visit his wife's niche, and that was four years ago, and he still comes every day. He never joined the grief group. So it's sad when you listen to someone else, and they put that in your mind that, you you know, your time is up now. But th there is no time. Society yeah. does that. Society wow. puts time limits on it. Mm -hmm. From employers giving you only, uh, you know, three or four days oh off. Goodness, yeah. um, mm -hmm. To the government giving you only so much um, support. Mm -hmm. um, so your friends thinking that you need to get over it, you need to move on. And listen to that language too, right? Like to move on implies distance, to move on away from the person you love. And then also the, the use of past tense. Like I know you loved her dad. Right. I know you love, but it's, it's, it's still present tense. It hasn't ended. And about with your, uh, I love that you, you've met and worked with and studied under uh, Dr. Alan Wolfelt, what he talks about too is, is so beautifully about the relationship does not end, it changes. And that doesn't have to be a phenomenally spiritual or religious statement, mm -hmm. but it is true because the relationship does continue. And that's the power of, of, of memory. That's the power of storytelling. Um, that's the power of, of seeing things that remind you of the person you love and miss. And well, love never dies. No, love never dies. The other thing is, you know, love is one of those things, right? When we give love, we really hope to receive love back, mm -hmm. right? When you fall in love with someone, you're hoping that person loves you back. And when somebody dies, the one end of that love isn't returned anymore. And it's very difficult for people. And I think that's why people say it in the past tense, you love them. It's like you didn't love them. You still love them. Mm -hmm. They loved me but their love has now ended. Um, they can't show me their love anymore, but I can still show my love to them. I can still tell, tell tales about my mom. I can still talk about my dad. Um, I can explain things to my kids like, you know, wow, you know what? That smile you just did is the exact same smile that granddad mm -hmm. did, you know? And I'm you're also writing about your parents now too. 
Yes. And it's, you know, I think it's like, like Maggie just said, love never dies. Love is always going on. And it's one way that you can show your love. Beautiful. Can you speak to us a little bit, uh, Maggie, about the difference between grief and complicated grief? I'm happy you said Maggie and not Brad. Go ahead, Maggie. <laughs> You're an expert about some things. Not You're complicated. <laughs> All right, big man. Uh, grief. There's normal grief. There's good grief. There's bad grief. And when it gets bad, it becomes complicated. When people maybe have lost... Let's say the man that lost all of his family in the fire and the house fire that we spoke about, he would go through complicated grief because he doesn't know who he's grieving first or what he's grieving. He's just got all of this thrown on top of him. And if he doesn't look after himself in his grieving process, he will probably probably maybe even end his own life because he just can't take any more. But complicated grief happens a lot when people don't face the fact. They listen to all their friends that tell them, you know, keep busy, go back to work. Don't don't talk about your loved one. Don't show any pictures. Don't talk his name. Um, and this is when it becomes complicated. Would you say that pharmaceuticals in terms of anti-anxiety medication, antidepressants, they can possibly also complicate grief? Because I, I've been quite fascinated, if not amazed, bordering on horrified at how uh, some people are really encouraged. They go to their GP, you know, the general, their, their general practitioner, and their response is, you want a prescription? You're depressed. You're depressed and here's a pill. Exactly. Get out. <laughs> I'm glad you asked that, Shannon. We had a lady in our grief group, um, one of the first groups. She had lost her husband tragically on the 401 in a car accident and her doctor put her on antidepressants and for four years she never grieved the, the pills just kept getting higher and higher and higher finally she went off the antidepressants and was able to grieve and stayed in our grief group you know she came back a few times but that's okay I tell them they can come back as many times as they want until they feel they're ready to move on. In storytelling, we call it the Shadowlands, right? Mm -hmm. The Shadowlands, and what's so horrifying, terrifying about the Shadowlands is it, it seems to have the promise that the light will never shine again. You'll always be in the dark versus, in fact, it's a valley mm -hmm. that you can come out of the Shadowlands. I find it really quite, um, as we come to a close, a, a paradox. It, and there's so many, so many things that you've said about the people you work with that although so much of this of the culture looking in can view grieving as being weak or being something to correct it sounds as if you're seeing your people the people you work with you have the privilege to work with to serve as tremendously courageous people absolutely absolutely and we tell them that every week how proud we are of them I did have one gentleman, someone asked him if he wanted to join the grief group. And uh, he said, no, I'm not getting in that stuff. I knew a guy went went, went once and he got married out of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are worse things. <laughs> so I guess that's another stigma that's out there. Oh, if you go to grief group. I, I'm not sure what's worth, but yeah. uh, okay, I'll, I'll take your word for it. Death tax um, and, and getting remarried in your grief group. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's interesting when we, we talk about grief and we talk about death and you know I, I heard someone once say the the most elegant um, expression that we can give to someone we love mm. is a tear Aww. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I tell our people that tears are not a sign of weakness, but a sign of love. And it makes them feel comfortable knowing that, that it's okay to cry. It is. That makes me want to cry a little bit. It clears the toxins out of our bodies as well. I'd cry, but the social uh, medium here wouldn't allow me to. I, <laughs> Maggie, I adore you, and you, you absolutely are a lighthouse, and I'm so thrilled that, that you came out and ha- had a drink with uh, me and The Undertaker. Thank you. Thank and, you. You know, Maggie, uh, we're really proud to have had you as our first guest of Life's Undertaking. Um, it's the beginning of a journey for all of us. And I know uh, if people want to contact you, they can contact you through your website. And Maggie's actually starting a new journey starting uh, in the next couple of weeks. She's going to become a, uh, a death doula. And I'm looking forward to it. What is your website? My website is www.heavenlyharmony.com. Uh, we look forward to talking to you again and learning more about your next journey. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for having me. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Good night.